the book of Philippians, of course, and uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, and we've been looking through our series, this is, I think, sermon number 8 uh, in our series as we work our way through uh, this great passage of Scripture. You know, from the very earliest centuries of church history, followers of Jesus have discussed and debated the issue that we call sanctification, becoming more holy, growing into spiritual maturity, being more like the Lord Jesus Christ. The word sanctify or sanctification simply means to be set apart for a special purpose. The New Testament very clearly indicates that God's design for us is to represent the Lord Jesus as His ambassadors, as His representatives, so that our values and our perspectives and our attitudes and our behaviors represent what the Lord Jesus would have us to be and to do. And even a casual reading of the New Testament would indicate God's design for us uh, to any observant reader that that's what God wants. He wants us to be His ambassadors. But that issue, the issue of sanctification, has led to lots of discussions and debates uh, regarding that issue. Well, what is the relationship between what God does in my sanctification and what I do? How does the power of God work with my obedience? How much am I responsible for? Is my sanctification all up to me? Is it all up to God? Is it a 50-50 combination of me and God? Or is it 60-40? Is it 30-70? Exactly how does all of this work? This, this discussion debate has been going on since the very early centuries of church history. And, and it's not a, an unusual question when it comes to spiritual issues. We ask the same questions regarding our salvation. How much of it is God and how much of it is me? What does God do and what do I do? Again, even a casual reading of the New Testament indicates that this great principle is that God is sovereign and man is responsible. People have argued and discussed and debated that for at least 1,600 years, if not more. If God is sovereign, how can man be responsible? If man is sovereign, how can, I mean, if man is, is responsible, how can God be sovereign? Well, you know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. Salvation is obviously a gift from God, not human works. John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus said, No one comes to me unless the Spirit draws him, unless the Father draws him. But in Acts 16.31, the Apostle Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Romans 10.13 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So salvation is not by human works, but it's always through personal faith. We might call this a paradox, sometime, or something that seems to be contradictory, something that seems to, to not fit our logical thoughts, but yet it's true. We could say the same thing about the nature of the Lord Jesus. Talked about it in the last few weeks in our study of, of Philippians. He's 100% God and he's 100% man. It, it's a paradox that we can't fully comprehend. The writing of the scripture written by human beings who were divinely inspired to write exactly what God told them to write. That's again, it's, it's a paradox. Is the Bible a human book? No, it is not. Was it written by human beings? Yes, it was. God told them what to write. 
So we've got that paradox there again. Uh, we may say the gospel is offered to the whole world, but it's only effective to those who believe. Everybody isn't universally saved. I remember, uh, oh, it's been probably eight or nine years ago, doing some Awana teaching here on, on a Wednesday night, and, and I just made a passing remark to the kids. I didn't know it was going to elicit such a great response. But as I was, was getting ready for the, uh, the lesson time, I said, you know, people don't just automatically go to heaven. And about six kids straightened up in their seat and they said, we don't? <laughs> no, we don't just automatically go to heaven. The gospel is offered to the whole world, but it's only applied to those who believe. It's a paradox. The shed blood of Christ is sufficient payment for the sins of the whole world, but it's only applied to those who believe. We are, we are eternally secure in Jesus, yet He tells us to persevere. See, we see those paradoxes all throughout the Scripture. We can't line it all up in our minds. We can't see how certain things work together. And yet the Scripture teaches both things. God is sovereign, man is responsible. God must ultimately save, but man must genuinely respond. Jesus was totally human, yet he was totally divine. It's a paradox, but the Bible teaches both of those. There's a gigantic word that we don't use often, but it is correctly applied to God, and that's the word incomprehensible. Meaning that there are things about God that our little three-pound human brains cannot quite comprehend. And you know, if we could comprehend everything about God, He would not be worth worshiping. Because He wouldn't be any greater than we are. If we could figure out everything about God, He would be one of us. And He wouldn't be worth worshiping. So, so the fact that certain things about God are incomprehensible is one thing that makes Him God and makes us not God. He's the Creator and we are His creation. So there's a number of paradoxes in the Scripture, and I believe that the best approach to those paradoxes is simply to take the Scripture for what it says and not try to figure out a solution to every paradox. If you try to figure out a solution for every scriptural paradox, you'll either become frustrated and disillusioned, or you'll swing to one extreme or the other, emphasizing one side of the paradox or ignoring the other. And in this issue of sanctification, we've got two extremes. The one extreme, and I've heard this read, in fact, I grew up in a church that kind of preached it. The one extreme is, let go and let God. I mean, I kind of grew up singing a little song. Let go and let God have His wonderful way. Let go and let God have His way. Anybody else sing that? I did a lot when I was a kid. Let go and let God. Just just drop it all and let God fix it. Okay. I just totally submit to God and I just leave everything to Him and He will fix all my sin issues. The other extreme is God helps those who help themselves view. You know that verse, right? God helps those who help themselves just kidding, it's not in the Bible. <laughs> People quote it, you know, God helps, those, God helps those who help themselves, as though it's a Bible verse, it's, it's not in the Bible. But, the, but, the, but, that, but that view is, stop being so passive and get your act together. You know what? Both of those views are scripturally correct. 
Totally submit your life to the Lord Jesus. Stop trying to do everything your own way. Take your hands off your life and trust God to help you. And stop being so passive and get your act together. Both of those views are in the Scripture. Yes, it's a paradox. We don't see exactly how it all fits together and exactly where the line is between trust God and get your act together. But, but that paradox it is exactly what the Apostle Paul is teaching in these next two verses we're going to take a look at. I know you got your place there in Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 12 and verse 13. It's one little paragraph in Paul's letter here. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do you see it? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Not work at, not work for, not work up, but work out. One, one Greek word, it's, a, it's one verb in the Greek text, one word, it means to produce, to accomplish, to perform. In other words, Paul says in verse 12, get with it and get your act together. Then he says in verse 13, but it's God who's working in you. Now, but, but before we dissect the passage, which we'll do in just a moment, I want to show you, uh, show you a few other interesting passages where we see this same paradox. I mean, we're going to look at four of them. One of my favorites, actually, the first one is in Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14, as I was thinking about this passage, and actually I was talking to Carol about it for just a moment, I just kind of read a piece of it to her. I mean, I can't help but chuckle when you see how God deals with the children of Israel. Exodus 14, by the way, if, you, if it doesn't ring a bell, it's the story of the Red Sea crossing. Children of Israel crossing the Red Sea, you know they left Egypt, and you, you're familiar with the story. And, um, and uh, Pharaoh and his 600 chariots are out there chasing them, and they pin them in uh, right, right at the edge of the Red Sea. And there's nowhere to go, and they're down in this valley, and Pharaoh's army surrounds them, and there's no place there but the Red Sea. And that, that whole story is here in Exodus 14. We are going to read just a couple of verses in the middle of it. Look at verse 13. The children of Israel, by the way, are moaning and growing. Oh, why'd you bring us out here to die, Moses? I mean, we should have just stayed in Egypt, but just serve the Egyptians. We're going to die in the wilderness, on and on and on. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. Lift up your rod, stretch it over your hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel should go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. Think about what is being said here. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Why do you keep crying to me? Walk toward the Red Sea, will you? You see the paradox? Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which He will accomplish before you. Why are you crying to me? Tell the children of Israel, go forward. In other words, don't stand still. Walk toward the Red Sea. Do something. But stand still and see the, the power of God. You see the paradox there. 
God is sovereign, man is responsible. Yes, God's going to fight for you. But you don't just stand there looking up at the sky crying about it. Do something. Go forward. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, way back at the other end of the Bible. Second Peter chapter 1. And we'll kind of peruse through verses 3 through 10. Second Peter 1 verses 3 through 10. Look at verse 2, I guess we'll start reading there. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ and of Jesus our Lord as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which we've been called, uh, to give, have been given to us rather exceeding great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the, the same thing there. Verse 3, His divine power has given us everything that we need that pertains to life and godliness. There is nothing, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, there is nothing that you lack as far as resources to do what God wants you to do and to be what God wants you to be. There is nothing that you lack. God has given it all to you. But He says, add to your your faith, virtue, and virtue, knowledge, and knowledge, self-control. In other words, do something. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. Turn just back a page or two to James. You're, you're pretty close. Second Peter to First Peter, then you'll be at James. Chapter 4. Just a couple of thoughts here. Look at verse 7. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Interesting thought, huh? Submit to God, but resist the devil. Let go and let God, and then go fight the devil. Okay, submit to God, and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Down to verse 17. Therefore, to him who knows to do good, and does not do it, to him it is sin. Submit to God and fight the devil and do what you know is right, because if you don't, you're living in sin and you know it, James, or James says. So we've got that same paradox there. And then the final one, Colossians chapter 1. It's right after Philippians, so Philippians and then Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, as the Apostle Paul writes to this church down near the end of the chapter here. And we're going to start to read in verse 27. To them, meaning the Gentiles, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, 
warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. You see, you've got God working in Paul and Paul laboring. You see, God, God works in you in order to work through you. God works in you in order to work through you. We've talked many times about issues of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, we've quoted to you. Guard your heart with all diligence, we read a few moments ago. For out of it flow the issues of life, there in Proverbs 4. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, God works in us to change our hearts so He can work through us to be what He wants us to be to minister to others. I have a role in my sanctification. God has a role in my sanctification. It's not all up to me. God has to be working in me and on me. So I can't just say prayers and hope my life changes. During my experiences as a biblical counselor, we have a little form people fill out. And, you know, what do you, what do you think your problem is that you're coming for counseling for? And what have you done about it? They write out what they've done about it. You know, you know the number one answer? You probably guess. Pray. What have you done about it? Pray. You done anything else about it? Uh, something else I should do? I prayed. Okay, so you can't, you can't just say prayers and hope your life changes. You and I do have a role in our sanctification. Stand still and see the power of God at work, and stop standing around crying to God and start walking toward the Red Sea. We could go on and on and on with these scriptures. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great British preacher, late 1800s, he once said, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are like a train track that runs through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. The, the rails never intersect, but the rails are parallel, running side by side throughout the Scripture, and you will wreck your theology if you ignore one of the rails. So we'll, we'll see both rails in this passage, my role in my sanctification and God's role in my sanctification. And when we understand this, then we're going to have proper biblical motivation for growing in Christ. We'll understand the path to spiritual maturity. And what we're going to call our little study here in these next couple minutes, here in Philly, I'm joking, of course, the next couple minutes, right? And the next few minutes, okay, well, what we're going to call our study in, the, in these next couple verses is motivation in sanctification. What is our motivation in sanctification? I'm going to look at it very simply two ways. My view of me and my view of God. Because I have a role in my sanctification and God has a role in my sanctification. The Bible clearly teaches it. Yes, God's sovereign. Yes, man's responsible. Yes, there are things only God can do. Yes, there are things He expects me to do. So, so what is our motivation in sanctification? First of all, my view of me. When I look at myself, and when I look at my life, what do I need to know about myself? What is biblically true about me? Paul gives us at least three things here, maybe more, but there's at least three, three truths about me that I, need to, that, that I need to remember. The first one is this, I am loved. 
Notice in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved. The word beloved means one who is dearly loved. And when we are striving to live a holy life and to be what the Lord Jesus wants us to be, then it's quite motivational to know that you're loved. And not that God likes you because he thinks you're nice. That's not the issue. God loves us because he has decided to do so because we're a bunch of sinners who deserve hell. God decided to love us. He has decided to do so. Romans 5.8, quoted to you many times, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That great passage in 1 John 4, we love him because he first loved us. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus says, as you said, actually quoting from Moses in the Old Testament, I will never leave you or forsake you so that you can boldly say, I will not fear. And then the great passage, 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ constrains me, Paul says, or compels us. And interestingly, that word, 2 Corinthians 5.14, the love of Christ constrains us. The word translated constrain, it's only used 12 times in the New Testament, but it's used in a variety of situations. It's used when talking about people who are overcome with a disease, their bodies had no choice but to respond in certain ways to the infection controlling their body. They were constrained by disease. It, it, that word means to hedge or to hem in. To be so overtaken by something that you have no choice except to go with it. Good illustration that toothpaste. You put pressure on the tube, it constrains the toothpaste to exit the only way that it can. Unless you've really messed with the tube and you make a mess of something. But, but the toothpaste is designed to come out one spot. And as you squeeze it, that's what happens. It is constrained to go out one way. There's no choice for the toothpaste. It comes out through the hole at the top. Paul tells us there in that verse in 2 Corinthians 5.14 that, that, that what, he says, what gives me no choice? What forces me to live the way I live? He said, it is the love of Christ. Notice he didn't say, my love for Christ. He said, the love of Christ, meaning Christ's love for me, not my love for Him. That, that, that he said, is, is the constraining power in my life. Paul said, I am what I am, I do what I do, I endure what I endure, because the love of Christ is compelling me to do that. The great, the great uh, devotional writer Oswald Chambers from the early 1900s uh, uh, wrote that Paul was overpowered, subdued, and held in like a vice by the love of Christ. He said, very few of us really know what it means to be held in the grip of the love of Christ because we are so often controlled by our own feelings and experiences. The one thing that gripped and held Paul to the exclusion of everything else was the love of God for him. You see, that's what motivated him to be what God called him to be and to do what God led him to do. Christ's love for us should be an incredibly powerful motivator because it tells us that we are not alone. We are not left to ourselves. We, are, we will never be abandoned. We are loved. So if you are loved by God, Paul says, then obey. He says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. He said, you've always been obeying. And let me just tell you as well that the word obey doesn't just mean do it. 
In the scripture, the word obey means to respond with, with submission. Interestingly, this particular word translated obey here in uh, Philippians chapter 2, it, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 12. If you remember that story, Peter's been arrested. James was killed by, by Herod, so, uh, and he, he saw that the Jews were happy about that, so Herod arrests Peter, throws him in jail. Uh, the church has a prayer meeting, and they're praying for Peter to be, to be delivered, and Peter's sleeping in the jail. You remember, of course, the angel comes and, and uh, opens the doors and takes his chains off, and Peter walks out. And he comes to the door, back where he knew the Christians were praying for him, and he knocks on the door, and there's a little servant girl who comes, and, and she realizes it's Peter. She forgets to unbolt the door. She runs back to the people, and she says, Peter's here, Peter's here. And of course, they say, you're crazy. He's in jail. That's why we're having the prayer meeting. No, 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 he's really here. So she goes back, she lets him in. But that, that phrase went, Peter knocks on the door, and the little servant girl answers the door. It's the same word that's translated here, obeyed. She's responding to something that she hears. And I love the use of that word. Because when God knocks on the door of your heart, answer the door. When God calls you, respond. Don't run from God. Don't hide from God. You can't anyway, so why bother trying? Don't, don't, don't resist the moving of the Holy Spirit in your life. You are loved. So answer the door when God knocks. Second principle. I think the, the next two might be a little shorter. I'm responsible. Not only am I loved, I am responsible. Paul writes, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out, not as we said before, not work out, not work for, not work up, but work out, uh, meaning to produce, to accomplish, to perform. That's why it's translated work out. Produce something, Paul says. Uh, live like you're saved. If you really have experienced genuine salvation and forgiveness from the Lord Jesus, then Paul says live like it. You are responsible to live out the truth of your experience with the Lord Jesus. Work out your own salvation. And in that next phrase, he says, with fear and trembling, brings us to our third line, I will reap what I sow. Not only am I loved, but I am responsible, and I will reap what I sow. Work it out, Paul says, with fear and trembling. Not that you're afraid of losing your salvation, but, but that you are determined not to wreck your life for the Lord. Our lives are built on our choices. I've said to you hundreds of times. We are the sum total, right now, we are the sum total of all of our life choices up to this point in our lives. Some choices seem small and relatively insignificant. Some choices are huge and instantly life-changing. But all of our choices, even the seemingly little ones, they all add up to make us what we are today, for better or worse. Our lives are built on our choices. You know the phrase in Galatians 6, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will also reap. You sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. You sow to the Spirit, you reap life everlasting. It means life with an everlasting quality. You sow to the, to the flesh, you reap nothing but trouble in your life. You sow to the Spirit, you get life with an everlasting quality. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul talks about, about disciplining himself so that when he has preached to others, he does not become disqualified himself. 
So as we are looking at our lives, as we are viewing our role in sanctification, remember, we are loved, we are responsible, and we will reap what we sow. So then the second part of our sanctification, my view of God. What do I have to remember about God? Three things we remember about God from this passage. First one is His power. Second one is His presence. And the third one is His pleasure. First of all, His power. Paul says in verse 13, It is God who works in you to will and do for His good pleasure. God works in you. He's working in me. Different word than translated work out in the previous verse. Completely different verb. This word means energy. In fact, it's the word energeto. We get our English word energy from it. God, God is energizing me, Paul says. Not just physical stamina, although it may involve that, but spiritual energy. The energy to not quit. The energy to keep dying to self when you want to live for yourself. Remember Paul said, 1 Corinthians 15, I die daily. Every single day he's crucifying himself. Every single day he's killing the flesh. Every single day he's doing that. And, and there are times we get tired of doing that. But Paul says God is energizing me. He's working in me so that I have the energy to not quit. And the energy to keep dying to self when I want to live for me. And, and the resolve to keep serving when it hurts. And you'd like to throw in the towel. Paul says God's power is at work in us. We are not on our own. His power is available to us, as we read just a couple moments ago in First Peter, or Second Peter one. His divine power has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Remember, God's power is always available for the true follower of the Lord Jesus. But then, notice Paul said, "God works in you." God's power is working in you. It's not some outside force that we have to tap into. He has promised His presence. Matthew 28, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age, Jesus said, right before He left His disciples. Verse we just read you in Hebrews 13, 8, I will never leave you or forsake you. We are not on our own. We are not alone. We are never left to ourselves. We are never abandoned. God's presence is always there. Great passage was a comfort to many people over the years. Uh, Psalm 27.10, King David wrote, When my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. So many folks have had troubles, heartaches. People they loved rejected them. Great passage, Psalm 27.10, When my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will lift me up. It's an old commentator from the early 1800s, Joseph Benson. Never, never heard of it, but came across a great comment by him this week in my study on this verse, Psalm 27.10. He says, That is when the nearest and dearest friends I have in the world, from whom I may expect the most relief and with the most reason, when they either die or at a distance from me, or they're unable to help me in my time of need, or they're unkind to me, or unmindful of me, and they will not help me, when I'm as helpless as ever a poor orphan was that was left fatherless and motherless, then I know that the Lord will lift me up. As a poor wandering sheep is taken up and saved from perishing, God's time to help those who trust Him is always when all the other helpers fail. Beautiful thoughts. Never forget God's power. Never forget God's presence. 
And then the third thought here, God's pleasure. He said, it is God who works in you both to will and to do for His good, good pleasure. God's design is for us to bring glory to God through our obedience and our service to Him. It may seem strange to us that the eternal, infinite, all-powerful Creator of all things would take pleasure in anything that weak, flawed, forgiven sinners might do. But the Holy Spirit says to the Apostle Paul here that God's power and God's presence is aimed at God's pleasure. He energizes us. He is present with us to, to produce desires and actions that please God. That's what he means by to will and to do. The word there, to will, means, means to choose, to desire, to want. And then to actually do it. God is working in you, he says, to actually want the right things. And then to actually do the right things. Remember that great prayer of blessing Moses spoke uh, 3,500 years ago, back in number 6. People, a certain denomination of groups like to quote it at the end of a service. Great verse. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance on you and give you peace. So you see, as we look at our lives and review our role in our sanctification, remember, we are loved, we are responsible, we will reap what we sow. And as we view God's role in our sanctification, remember, God's power is energizing us. God's presence is surrounding us. God's pleasure is always blessing us. So stand still and see the deliverance of Almighty God and then get busy walking toward the edge of the Red Sea. Trust God and get your act together. Then you will have a successful sanctification process going on in your life. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your grace and mercy to us. We're so thankful for all that you are and all that you do. You know, we are totally helpless without you. You told your disciples in John 15, without me you can do nothing, and that's certainly true. But Lord, we also have responsibilities to discipline ourselves, to, to do the things that are right. To him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin, James says. So Lord, help us to get our balance right between our responsibilities and our sanctification and your responsibilities and our sanctification. And I pray, Lord, that as we find that right balance and fine-tune those things in our lives, that we will grow, that we will be used of God in mighty ways, and that we will see the hand of blessing of God on our lives for the rest of our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Grab your hymn book, if you would, and look at number 540. Number 540. I could not think of a better song to sing as we wind up the service today, number 540, I Run to Christ. 540.
in every challenge, in every trial, in every heartache, in every wound. I pray, Father, that we will live up to our role in our sanctification and continue to trust you to do your work in us so that you can do your work through us. Thank you, Lord, for our fellowship today and for these these who are with us. We pray that you'd guide them, keep them in your care, keep us all in your care until we gather together again, Lord willing, next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks so much for being here today. What a tremendous surprise, all you mountain folks. That was great. What a blast.